Well, if you flip over one more page, page uh, 10, you should find there the words to Psalm 23. And uh, particularly if, if uh, this is your first time with us, today is a bit of an unusual day. Uh, this is my, my last Sunday here at Red Mountain as the senior pastor. And uh, if you ask me later on how I'm doing, you're likely going to get a blank stare. Uh, it's kind of not the easiest question to answer. And before we jump in, I- I'm really thankful for that. Uh, I am thankful to be internally very conflicted and uh, unsettled uh, because it-, it means that on the one hand, I think my family and I were excited about the, the season that we're going to enter into, but I have loved being your pastor. And I will miss getting to stand up here every Sunday. Uh, I'll miss getting to sit uh, together across the table and talk about what's going on. Um, I will miss helping to lead this congregation uh, to do what we think God's calling us to do here in Birmingham. And so uh, this morning as we come to look at the scriptures together, um, I, I've wrestled all week with how, to, how, do, you, how do you intro this kind of sermon? I, I don't really know. So just track with me for a minute. Uh, you know, one way of approaching this is, what's the one thing I want to tell you before I, I, um, I leave as your pastor? That's a very overwhelming thing to contemplate. And yet, the more I thought about what we've been doing in Genesis and the story of Joseph, uh, it didn't take long for Psalm 23 to come to mind. Uh, if you think about the story of Joseph in Genesis, it's a story that is just full of jealousy and deception and um, competition, uh, of abandonment, uh, of grief, of injustice. And at the same time, it's also full of wisdom and perseverance and reconciliation and salvation and Woven through all of that is the the very consistent, uh, firm refrain that God is working through the worst of our intentions, the worst of our actions, the worst of the circumstances that we face to bring about good for his people. And so as I thought about that, I was like, well, this, this, the Joseph story is a very realistic story. I think there are all kinds of ways in which we need to and should see our own lives in light of that story. And yet, it's really, really hard in, in the everyday and the ordinary of the ups and the downs to believe that God is weaving himself into all of those details to do us good. And so, this morning, I want to ask this question What can sustain you and cause you to grow and flourish no matter what comes? My answer, and this is the one thing that I want to leave you with, my answer to that question comes from Psalm 23, verse 6. If you look there, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a profound statement. 
It's a, a statement of assurance of faith. And I want to unpack this one verse because in this one verse, uh, as we look at this psalm, this goodness and mercy that is referred to here is talking about God's goodness and mercy. This is not goodness and mercy in the abstract. This is talking about God and his goodness and his mercy. And David, who wrote this psalm, describes that goodness and mercy as following you. Now, you might initially think of that as following you, as sort of trailing behind. Sometimes it can feel like, that's great that it's following me, but it feels like his goodness and mercy never really catches up to me. But what David is saying here when he uses that word follow is that God's goodness and mercy is pursuing you. Every day of your life, unceasingly. And he is saying, surely this is true. And not only that, surely I will dwell in his house forever. So what I want us to think about this morning is how do you get that kind of faith? How do you get that kind of confidence? What can sustain that kind of faith, given what life is really like? So let's read Psalm 23, and then I'll tell you how we're going to work our way through this. Feel free to listen, or you can, you can just follow along. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's how I want to look at this. I want you to think about verse 6 as really the, the culmination of this psalm that leads David, and I hope begins to lead you, to say, surely, Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is my great longing for you at, at, and individually and as a church, that that verse and all that it encapsulates would be the refrain of your hearts. Now, how does that happen? And the answer of verses 1 through 5 is knowing God to be your shepherd. So we're going to look at this. We're going to look at what the shepherd does, verses 1 to 3, where the shepherd goes in verse 4, and then what the shepherd gives in verse 5. So first, let's look at what the shepherd does. Look in verse 1 to 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, if you've grown up around the church, my guess is this is a familiar psalm, and these words begin to roll off, but... I want you to stop and think for a minute. What the shepherd does, first and foremost, that leads to David's confession in verse 6, first of all, is he satisfies the soul. Why is that so important? 
Notice what he says here very, at the very beginning of verse 1. He says, I shall not want. What is in conflict with deep soul satisfaction? It's our wants. It is the wants that compete with or usurp God's love for you. See, when he says here, I shall not want, he isn't saying that all the wants that we have are bad or wrong. That's just not the case. In fact, more likely, the wants that we have are good things. The point here is, do those wants usurp or compete with God's love for you as your shepherd? So when David begins this psalm, he is explaining and putting in front of us a shepherd who can satisfy us in such a way that we can long for and love and want the good and the true and the beautiful and it not own us. Well, how does he do this? Look at here in verse 2 to 3. I want you to notice for a second all the active verbs. He says here, he makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Four times, God as our shepherd is described as actively doing something to us and for us. And not only that, if you notice at the end of verse 3, when it says that he leads me in paths of righteousness, he says, for his name's sake. What David is saying here is, to be as blunt as I can, God's not doing this for you. To satisfy your wishes. He's doing it for his glory. Another way of thinking about that is that this shepherd gives ultimate meaning and purpose to our lives. That reaches far beyond who we are and yet involves you to the very depths of your being. And here's one of the points I want you to see from this. And When you look at verses 1 to 3, what the shepherd does is he satisfies souls that cannot be satisfied by anything or anyone else. And as I was reflecting on this and thinking about these active verbs here, the question came to mind for me, will we ever stop pursuing our own satisfaction unless God disrupts it? and intervenes and changes us? I think the answer is no. See, contentment, deep satisfaction at the core of who you are cannot be gotten. It must be given. And it can only be given if you know this shepherd who gives you the refreshment, who gives you the peace and the rest, who gives you the leadership, who gives you the purpose to want what he wants more than anything that you might want. This is one of the reasons why we read from Matthew chapter 11 this morning when Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus is the shepherd who can satisfy your soul 
Now, if that's what the shepherd does, that he satisfies your soul, where does that shepherd go? Notice here, when we transition from verses 1 to 3 into verse 4, all the idyllic images shift. In verses 1 to 3, there are these green pastures, peaceful, restful, beautiful places. There are still waters, which is in contrast to tumultuous, dangerous, threatening waters. There are paths of righteousness. In verse 4, all of that shifts to this valley of the shadow of death. So where does the shepherd go? He goes into the very darkest of places. That language there, the valley of the shadow of death, has become so um, pervasive in the English translations of, of the Bible that it is uh, hard to, um, to think of in any other way. And I certainly don't want to because I think it's accurate. But one of the, the things that, that that language can do is it can make you think that this passage or this psalm really only speaks to uh, when I or someone else is facing death, the end of their lives. And I want you to think for a moment here that literally as this phrase that we call the valley of the shadow of death is translated, it actually can also mean deep darkness or the darkest places or the darkest valley. So that what David is saying here, this shepherd goes into the deepest, darkest, most scariest threatening places that you will ever go. There is no place you will go this side of heaven that this shepherd will not go. You need to let that sink in because this shepherd goes from these beautiful, peaceful places in verses 1 to 3 into the deepest and the darkest, loneliest, scariest places. And how does he go there with us? Notice in verse 4, David says, You are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These are the tools of the shepherd. The rod was really this, this utensil or this long stick that was used to defend the sheep, to fend off predators who would uh, come and take the sheep. But then there is the, the staff which was a guide for the sheep. Now, I want you to put yourself into this imagery for a minute. You have a shepherd who's guiding his sheep, perhaps it's dark, uh, out from a far-off pasture, bringing them back. And uh, there are predators all around. And the sheep get spooked and they're afraid. And he has to use his staff to guide them. In other words, the image that we're being given here is that in the deepest and the darkest places, we are most prone to live by fear, not by his presence. And when David here describes God as our shepherd, comforting us with his rod and our staff, what he's saying is, we have a shepherd who will defend us in the deepest and darkest places, but he'll also discipline us as a father to a son and a daughter. 
Well, he will guide us. He will not let our fear take us away from him. Here we have where the shepherd goes. He goes in those places where we are most prone to live by fear rather than by his presence. And here's the question. It's one thing to read this, but how, how can you be sure that this shepherd will go with you in these places? And the answer to that is very simply by looking at Jesus. Jesus, as we read earlier, says, I am the good shepherd. How do you know that Jesus as the good shepherd will go with you into the deepest and the darkest places? It's because he has already come and he's already gone there for you. Jesus gave up everything he had in perfect fellowship with his father to enter into this world broken and shot through with sin as it is. To do for us what we can't do for ourselves. To wrongfully be accused, unjustly convicted, forsaken, abandoned, crucified, and dead outside the city. And in fact, forsaken by his father. If you ever wanted to know or aren't sure, will Jesus go with me into the darkest places? You need to look to where he has already gone. And why did he go there? He went there for two reasons. One, because he wants you to know that he knows how dark things are this side of heaven and he will go there with you. But he also wants you to know you will not stay there with him as your shepherd. That's what the resurrection teaches us. Death and darkness do not have the last word, but resurrection does. And as the good shepherd, Jesus will lead you through that and out of it. So if that's what the shepherd does, and it's where the shepherd goes, if we... Build on top of that, then what does the shepherd give? Look in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. What does the shepherd give? Notice this is a banquet. It's an amazing feast. And the imagery here has shifted from a shepherd to a host. But when you combine those two, what do we now have? We now have a shepherd who feeds his sheep. And how does he feed his sheep? How does he bless his sheep? Notice what he does. He anoints your head with oil and your cup overflows. Now, this anointing oil means a lot of different things in in the Old Testament. But most likely what it means here is that in the ancient Near East, when you would sit down to a, a great meal, a big banquet... Uh, you, you would be anointed with oil. It, it's, it's a means of refreshment, a way to, to, to wipe off the dirt and the grime of the day. I, I guess an analogy in our day and age would be, you know, if you ever um, are going out to dinner or you go to someone's house and before you sit down, you go to the bathroom and you like, you, you sort of splash water on your face and you wash your hands and you kind of, you freshen up. Here, God is saying, I am going to refresh you. I am going to pour on you 
what can wipe away the dirt and the grime. In other words, the impact and the effects of life as you know it. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to have a meal with you and your cup is going to overflow. Here is this picture of rich, abundant blessing for the sheep. And I want you to think about this in terms of a meal. What are meals? Meals are some of the most intimate, relational events that we enjoy as human beings. And here God is saying, I am preparing a table for you. I want to sit with you. I want to know you. I want to enjoy my blessings with you. And just think about this picture of your cup overflowing. On the one hand, that, that, can, that can mean there's more than enough. There's more than enough food. There's more than enough wine. But it can also mean leisure. Having more than one glass of wine together over hours of conversation and fellowship. And, and I want to give you a, a brief window in on, on this, what this made me think of. Um, we have a little bit of a tradition in our home where from time to time, there's really not any rhyme or reason to it. It's usually um, something's going on in one of my boys' lives, and I don't know what to do, which is a lot. Um, but sometimes those things happen, and all I know to do is to carve out time for me and one of my boys to go sit together face-to-face over a meal. And um, as one would have it, they really like Chez Fon Fon. <laughs> so, uh, which is why it can be very intermittent. But um, we go and, and go to Chez Fon Fon, and I don't really care how long the wait is. Uh, Sometimes I found out they do let underage people sit at the bar. So we'll go there and I'll have a cocktail and they'll get like a, a Shirley Temple or something and we'll talk. And then we sit down and have dinner and they really like the hamburger, and, uh, which is great. And we have dessert and um, they have a bocce ball court in the back if you sit out there. And it ends up being this, this opportunity for me to bless my boys and, and to help them to see, you know, I, I don't know what to do with all that's gone in your life. But we can sit here together and I want you to know I want to know. And I want you to tell me everything. And I'll ask you questions. And we can talk about Fortnite if you want. Whatever. Why is that so important? Well, notice what he says here that God sets this table in the presence of your enemies. There are a couple ways that can get read. One is that it describes a victory celebration, that God has actually set free his people from threat of enemies. But another way that 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 can be understood is that God sets this table for you and enters into fellowship with you in the midst of a, a world that is would like nothing more than to see you crash and burn. And he carves out this haven and this space where he sits with you and he fellowships with you and he blesses you. And what I want you to see about this, um, 
we can't stop from Psalm 23 and just ask what the shepherd gives in light of these verses. Because as we look at this, as the scriptures unfold, and especially as we get to Jesus, what we have is not just a shepherd who gives you a beautiful feast and feeds you. We have a shepherd who gives you his very life. And therefore, when we talk about what does the shepherd give in blessing you, in your cup overflowing, it's the meal that we get to enjoy every single week here together. Every single week, we get to experience verse 5, fulfilled, where Jesus has set this table for us to bless you, to anoint you, to experience the overflowing love and blessing that he has for you. And in fact, you know what? This isn't it either. This is still a foretaste of that great day, of the wedding supper of the Lamb, when we will sit together and enjoy all the blessing he has for you. So here's what I want you to to hear me say to you. Surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life, and you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you have that kind of faith? If not, welcome to the club. That's why this psalm was written, so that you could see here's what the shepherd does, here's where the shepherd goes. Here's what the shepherd gives. And it's only because all of those things are true that David finally ultimately can say, surely these things then must be true. That God in his mercy, he will pursue me every day of my life. And he will make sure that I get home to be with him. The way that Paul would describe what we're reading here is at the end of Romans chapter 8 when he says... Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so as we wrap up this psalm, I, I, I want to say, first of all, I want to say to my family, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And, and I want to say to each and every one of you, surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I want to say it again to you as a congregation. That surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for these words. Thank you for for these people, your sheep. Thank you for the privilege of serving them. And I pray, Father, that you would go before us, that you would make our paths straight, that your gospel would win in our hearts and in this community and in this city. 
And Father, we pray that what David says in this psalm would in fact be true for each of us, that you would weave it into the depths of our beings and that each and every morning and each and every evening we would find ourselves with this refrain on our lips that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.